Hey, hey, and welcome to the ComaCast. I'm your co-host, Cody. Hey, everyone. I'm Matt here, and we are glad you're joining us for another episode of the ComaCast. That's right, Matt. It's where we dive into the lives of LGBT individuals whose crime cases have gone cold. And today, we're going to be talking about Carla Lee Salazar. Podcasting from the Lone Star State in Southern California, you're listening to the Coma Podcast with Cody and Matt. And we are back. Hey, Matt. So hey, Cody. I hear, well, first of all, I want to say I hear, but I, I know like in mid-Texas, Central Texas, West Texas, it's been like icy and snowy. And then I think it's probably been a little bit cooler there. That's true. So yesterday was 80. I even went to the gym and I was sweaty and miserable when we left. And I woke up today. It was 40. (laughs) So that's, you know, that's cool. So that's what we want to do. I thought I was done with the crazy weather, you know, living in Texas. Like you said, it's hot one day. And then like next day, it's like, wait, what? To pull out my different clothes. Um, Yes. And people that don't know, we actually will shut down the town here because we don't have salt trucks in texas i grew up i've lived well i've grown up and lived in um, ohio and pennsylvania you go to work in five six inches of snow a foot of snow (laughs) eh, you're you're fine but the roads are prepared for it whereas here in the south they're they're not it's safer to just shut for it and people don't know how to drive in it because they 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 don't they've never they never really have to drive in on a regular basis uh yeah here saturday it was like 80 degrees and um which is nice out here. It's not like super hot, like Texas 80. Um, <laughs> but I know exactly lo- what you meant when you say Texas 80. Huh. It is like a thing, kind of like Florida 80. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was kind of warm. It was nice. Uh, then like Sunday, it got a little bit cooler. And then like last night, it got like 34 degrees, I believe. Like some areas got below 30, I think. Uh, So one thing with it being so cold out, especially in the mornings, both here and then sometimes there in Texas, I don't want to have to get out to go get breakfast. So like, are you like a big breakfast person? Do y'all like make breakfast at home or do you go out and get breakfast or like? So David gets up before I do. Um, I, if I'm awake, I do like breakfast, but I get up at about, I'm usually up around 8.30 to 9. David gets up around 7, 6.45 to 7 for work. So the coffee pot is set on a timer, so he can't leave. Occasionally he'll want something, but typically he takes his lunch at 11 because he gets off at 3.30. So, and we always do it at 11, so if we decide to go somewhere, we can get out and back faster rather than trying to go through a drive through line at noon. Um, Breakfast is hit or miss. Sometimes we're both just in the mood for it and other times not. I prefer fruit and stuff like that in the mornings, but fruit just it all just goes bad so quickly. So we have the biggest problem keeping breakfast stuff in the house that we don't get tired of because eggs and toast every day get you know, kind of gets boring. So the reason I bring this up is uh, we have all these restaurants like fast food restaurants that have breakfast, but one restaurant fast food place that has not had breakfast 
has been Wendy's, and they just announced so that excited. they are going to have breakfast. Wendy's is going to have breakfast, and they made the announcement on Twitter, and they said, hey, at McDonald's, roast us. And then underneath, they were like, yeah, we wouldn't wake up for your breakfast either. Don't worry. On March 2nd, there will be something worth waking up for. Hashtag Wendy's breakfast. So you're excited? So I'm really excited because so over by us, the Wendy's drive through is so much faster and so much better than the McDonald's one. So I'm super excited because that is actually something we would go do. Um and both of us actually really like Taco Bell breakfast. I do love Taco it's, Bell breakfast. I have to tell you, like I, my Taco Bell days I thought were long behind me, but when it comes to breakfast, you can talk me into some Taco Bell breakfast if we're both awake and able to go get it. So that's the thing, people. Um, okay, now I'm really hungry, and I. <laughs> <laughs> do you want Wendy's or do you want Taco Bell? I want Wendy's. Mm, see, I'd choose Taco Bell. I'm really? all about the ta- yes. I'm all about Taco Bell. That just seems all about Taco Bell. <laughs> Here's the thing: a lot of people hate on Taco Bell. Like, oh, it got me through college. I but I have to. <laughs> Here's the thing: like, if you look at the food, like it is considered one of the healthiest fast food restaurants. I just actually had McDonald's breakfast uh, sausage biscuit, sausage muffin, like last week, and. I forgot how good it was. Like, and I know people are probably (laughs) going to visiting an old friend. People are going to hate on me, but like when I used to work in TV, the only place open like at three thirty in the morning was McDonald's. So I misunderstood you. I thought you meant like in general. Where would I go for breakfast? Um, I I, well, I haven't had Wendy's breakfast, so I'm going to give it a shot. But for general, like fast food, if I have to pick, I'm still going to pick Wendy's over Taco Bell for like dinner. Sorry, I misunderstood you. Carry on. <laughs> uh, yeah, so McDonald's, I would go there in the morning before work at like three thirty four in the morning and I would get sausage biscuit and I would do this almost like every day because like I was hungry and it was four in the morning and I didn't want to cook because then I would have to get up even earlier to cook and like I could wait till after I was off work, but then I was like hungry the whole time at work. So I'd always get McDonald's and so like I did that for like years and I loved it, but I haven't had it like in a few years, like the breakfast anyway, uh, probably, probably like five years. I haven't had it. Um, wow. so, so like to like get it now, it was like, Oh my God, this is so good. Ugh. Food tastes are incredible. The family I have located that is super, that is related to me, even though I never met them as we've gotten to know each other, we have very similar tastes. We even have the same handwriting. Well, it's like that whole thing <laughs> where like, uh, on and, uh, ancestry, no, not ancestry, uh, 23 and me. Well, yeah, that's do, the site I use. Um, I think ancestry kind of does it now, but 23 and me, uh, they have kind of like attributed your genes in the DNA that you have to certain things that you might have an aversion to. And so one yes. of the big things was an aversion to cilantro. You either have it or you don't. Now, sometimes it's completely wrong, but I guess they're looking at the average DNA right. of markers. This person has an aversion to cilantro. But so, yeah, so, it's interesting how that can just play a part on what you could or could right, not. So like. Actually, I have the app because um, I use 23andMe as well. And one of the things is... Uh, there's a research button. It's really right there. And you can kind of see from questions you've answered and it'll kind of tell you, oh, based on your genetic markers, based on your markers, this is like kind of things that you would 
do or don't have. And I would say hmm, probably 80, 90% of them were like it was either right on or dead wrong that doesn't mean it's wrong but like you said we're looking at an average but yeah like the texas toast thing growing up i never liked texas toast i didn't like um there's something else i like i forget what it is that none of my family just stares at me but i don't i don't remember what it is oh i don't like ranch dressing oh my god yes we this was one of the other situations that happened we were talking about something or i saw that he didn't like ranch on twitter and i texted didn't him you immediately block me <laughs> <laughs> i should have no i saw that he yeah. didn't like ranch he was responding to someone on twitter saying he didn't like ranch and i immediately text him and like what is this so if you don't know the um so cody and i do follow each other on twitter and we interact with each other publicly and we also text and then of course we do this and sometimes we're having three separate conversations because we do separate the work and the you know, I would say we separate work and um, our friendship, but sometimes they do bubble over. But I do remember that text message because my husband loves ranch dressing. I'm pretty sure that like I know he cares about me, but if there was only one bottle of ranch in the world and me, things are not looking good, y'all. <laughs> does um, does I your want, uh, I want to get uh, this. I just saw it somewhere. So like, you know, some places, uh, I, Disney World has this, Disneyland has it, where it's like air pressure ketchup. So basically you like pull this little tab and the ketchup just comes out. It's not like pumps or anything. It's literally like, oh, a, that's neat. It's like a little air pressure. I don't know. Uh, CO2 or something that pushes the ketchup out. They have it at Raising Cane's here anyway i think they'll have it there so if you go inside you can't do the drive-thru if you go inside they'll have this <laughs> but they have one also i don't know where i saw this but basically you can get it with ranch too and like i was saying i want these little taps a tap for ketchup and a tap for ranch and it's just like on the counter somewhere you want ranch or ketchup you just go and pull the little tab and it just comes out for you Ranch. Wow, I didn't realize thin dressing was so easy to come by, but oh, okay. Um, when we're speaking of DNA, amazing how it is. It's really come a long way. And I know we've talked about this in the podcast before about the DNA and how it's helped with some of these cases. And one of the cases we're going to talk about today, Carla Salazar, DNA was a big, big player in that particular case. Absolutely. That was that was, I was, that's, that is funny that it came up because, you know, it's been a big conversation in um, our lives. You know, 23andMe just happened to be a gift from my husband two years ago, and it turned into this hilarious roller coaster. But um, it, it happened, we did it because it also plays into my fascination with science and DNA and how things work. But like you were pointing out, it was solved because of DNA and some of our other cases, they're working with DNA projects and cold cases in order to get them solved. And it was a DNA cold case task force. It was basically a cold case task force that worked with the DNA um, that was located that they were, they weren't able to do anything with at the time of the crime. But um, in the last 10 plus years, of course, things have evolved greatly and we've, we have more technology now. So we will find out more about that when we're coming up next when we talk about Carla Lee Salazar. And we are back talking today about Carla Lee Salazar. This is an interesting case. Uh, happened in California. Ultimately, it took several years 
Forrest to find out who did it. Um, and that came about as Matt was talking about a minute ago because of DNA that they had recovered from the scene of the crime. It remained unsolved for all of those years. New technology was allowed them to check that again with the cold case task force. And they were able to narrow it down to this man, the DNA matched the scene of the crime. Right. So Carla Lee Salazar was born in um, August 28th of 1953. And she was found stabbed to death in her apartment on June 29th of 1989. So in 1989, you know, we did not have um, DNA testing. You know, they collected evidence. They and there's not a lot publicly available to us either. Um, There are some things mentioned in various articles I found, but that's about it. We know she was a phone operator and lived alone in her apartment. And by all accounts, she seemed to have had a normal um, job. Normal, I mean, a normal life. You know, this didn't seem to be a uh, situation where we've had where somebody, you know, found during an, uh, an encounter or some kind of social interaction where they discovered she was trans and attacked her. Um, so the, the person suspected of her crime is... Well, at the time, he was 37-year-old Douglas Gutridge. So he saw articles about her crime in the register and called detectives and said he wanted to help because he was a friend. They had a consensual friendship. They had a consensual sexual relationship, and they were friends. And he has always maintained that. And he's always maintained his innocence as well. So in 1989, evidence was collected. And then essentially the case went cold until 2008. And then based on some this cold case task force that we mentioned earlier, they re-examined everything and they located DNA from an unknown male, which uh, turned out to be Gutridge. And so now, um, they, but that doesn't mean just because he was there in the apartment doesn't necessarily mean he, you know, attacked her or did anything because he was a friend of hers. He, you know, yeah, did, I think you know, what was interesting is that he, it had been the 25 years you know, ultimately from her death until we were able to come up with this who done it by this task force. But if we look at it, like in 2009, he voluntarily gave a DNA sample to the police. But at that time, there wasn't enough evidence to detain him. Correct. There was not. And it was determined later that not only was his DNA in her apartment, they were able to tell that he had placed his hands on her body. And so in uh, December 14th, well, December 9th, 2014, at 63 years old, uh, approximately, uh, Mr. Gutridge was detained and charged in her murder. And because he was an acquaintance of hers, and as far as we know, he may have been the last person alive and Per the police, he had long been a suspect. So there's a twist in this. Uh, so he if he'd been convicted and uh, sentenced, he was facing 25 years to life. So at mid-60s, this probably the rest of his life in jail. Well, he ended up dying of lung cancer in September of 2016. A couple of weeks before his death, he was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer and um, passed away. He was not able to see his family prior. His uh, attorney argued to have him moved, you know, for treatment. 
and ultimately he was not. His attorney believes that this was a two-person job and that um, Mr. Gutrich simply wanted to help, and that's why he called, and that's why he volunteered, and that's you know because he cared, not because he had anything to do with the crime. She believes it was a two-person job, and she alludes – well, she, she doesn't allude. She says that um, there was an attempt to remove Miss Salazar's leg post-mortem. And that it was that's why she believes it was a two person job. I was not able to really substantiate corroborate that. But that doesn't mean that's not true. It just means she likely has access to more information than, of course, Cody and I would have access to. Yeah. She talked about how that whoever killed Carla stuck around, tried to mutilate her body. Then they tried to cut off her leg post-mortem. Again, alluding to that it was a two person job that one person couldn't have done that. Um yeah, that's kind of a big, big thing that kind of came out when she was trying to to argue the innocence of him. Uh, like you've talked about, obviously his DNA was in her apartment because they believed that the pair had a consensual relationship. He had come forward, you know, earlier on, as you talked about. But then to like hear the lawyer come out with like kind of that statement when we it doesn't seem that there's anybody else who's really talked about, and there's not a lot of information out there about the exact details of of her death and like for the lawyer to be like someone trying to t- take off her leg after she's already been dead is kind of like a big, big thing. Right, and that's something that wasn't released to us apparently, but you know, that's a, a really aggressive, that's really aggressive. But I also, what makes you think that, why couldn't one person have done that? I mean, it's post-mortem so the victim isn't able to fight back so why couldn't they have this been one person and so the lawyer believed that um christine adams she was a um uh, mr gutridge's uh attorney she believes that it was a trans woman that uh miss salazar had a rocky relationship with had some difficulties with and that this was more of a a fight you know that's what i was kind of getting the impression of that it was something that just altercations that just escalated whereas in other ways we have this belief that uh, mr gutridge was um responsible for miss salazar's death and they had a consensual friendship and sexual relationship so no motive i, I didn't find any real reason as to why this would have happened and this was just such a twist that he ends up dying of lung cancer. So what this means is that it will be dis- the case was set to be dismissed because there's no other suspects. He's at this point the murderer, and they can prove that he put his hands on her body. And the way they word that, it makes it sound like, you know, post mortem put his hands on her body. So we have a couple different avenues we can look at it. Do we have the concerned friend um, that you know he just He'd seen that his, you know, acquaintance or friend was murdered. You know, we got to remember this is 1989. It's not like he was texting her and she stopped texting mid conversation. He got concerned. You well, know, there are those published accounts um, by some that Salazar was seen in the elevator uh, the evening prior to her death um, with a man. So right, and we don't have, and of course, you know, again, 1989, we don't have crystal clear footage to determine is it Mr. Gutridge or somebody else. It's believed she died on June 28th of 1989, and the next day when she didn't report for work, 
uh, her friend and an apartment manager and her apartment manager came to her door and they discovered her body and which must have just been absolutely horrifying you know just for the limited details we have she was stabbed to death was her cause of death yeah the multiple stab wounds um found in her apartment uh they also talked about like uh with her friend and the, the becoming alarmed is that she really was kind of a model citizen you know she was on time to work you know she was very friendly there was there was no outliers that would show that there could be any trouble with her or that she would have gotten herself into any trouble like some of our previous um podcasts we've talked about uh they're put into situations they put themselves into situations that could be be potentially harmful but in this case we we don't seem to see any anything that would put her into uh, a situation that could be a difficult situation or something that could ultimately lead us to this murder and this this uh, horrific stabbing. Miss Salazar was at home and, you know, and if she was seen in the elevator, there's no reports that she was in any sort of distress and otherwise had a perfectly normal life. Again, there's no other accounts. Now, she does still have living um, friends and they, uh, you know, they were quite relieved. They seem satisfied with uh, um, Mr. Gutridge's arrest, that that he was the killer and that seemed to have brought some closure to them. Yeah, one of uh, Salazar's closest friends, Christine McFadden, thought that they'd never find a suspect in this case. Again, we were going 25 years without anything. And for most people, you know, you would you would give up like that this nothing's going to happen. It's been 25 years. That is a long time to go without any kind of really big information concerning one of your loved one or a really close friend uh, being killed. But she, she didn't think they would ever find a suspect, but when they finally did uh, arrest Douglas, uh, she said, we gave up on the justice system, but we never gave up on her. So thankfully for her, you know, they were able to make this arrest and that gives some, some relief for her. I'm sure after all this time to have some finality to this. Right. And this is a slightly different case that we would typically talk about. You know, normally we talk about cases that, you know, are just unsolved. There's nothing else out there. But we this was a case that was a cold case for a long time. And just the DNA, just because they did do a good job of collecting it in Santa Ana in 1989. You know, I would have been three years old when this happened. So actually i was looking at the dates of it i would have been three for about a month so from that time till now this evidence was preserved enough that that when this task force got involved this was the first arrest for this task force as well and i can definitely say that obviously there's a long way to go for the lgbtq community in how crimes and assaults are generally taken care of by um law enforcement it's not a secret we can paint it any way we want, but in most, for example, in most small towns, for example, which is 99% of America, um, we're ignored or they don't care. They will just not even prosecute because they don't consider, you know, the relation relationships valid. So they just ignore domestic dis- disputes, you know, things like that. And that's, it just happens, you know, is that sheriff that's also a pastor. He went on this whole tirade about that. So let alone being in 1989 to see, the evidence was preserved enough that DNA testing was used and then they continued at it a year later when they were able to do additional testing that became available to um, 
bring this to light. Yeah, I think it's amazing. So there was this Orange County cold case homicide task force that was established. Uh, and it was established basically to address the more than 1,000 cold cases uh, in that area of Orange County, Southern California. And uh, Salazar's case happened to be at the top of the task force list. And uh, it was also the team's first arrest. So like this cold case really wanted to get this case solved. It was something that they had put at the top of their list and they were able to have great success with it. But also kind of just talking about technology, like we were talking about the 23andMe and Ancestry.com and this DNA that we're able to get. Uh, It's amazing how technology has advanced um, so that we're able to have cases become solved uh, with the DNA that was collected at the time. And then with technology advancing, we're able to reanalyze that and find some more information. It's kind of like we were talking about our Julie Doe case, how that has been cold for the longest time and they're able to get that DNA. And we're kind of learning a little bit more um, about things. And so it's just amazing how that technology advancing and we could even go farther. Like currently, it seems, you know, at this time, if there had been more like security cameras, we might have learned more information. And today there's security cameras everywhere. So it's it's interesting looking at how like how technology advancing can help crimes be solved in a quicker fashion. Or in this case, cold case 25 years ago, new technology, we're still able to kind of help that case. It doesn't have to be a current case using current technology to be solved you know we're luckily able to take these older cases and apply them with new technology and get a great outcome right because they use a company called i think a system's called codis for dna and it makes me kind of wonder you know if we took something like julie doe and did a dna swap and gave it to 23 and me and shared you know for example, like that's how we found mine. Like nothing popped up until I actually clicked the share button, and then anybody else who shared can see my profile, and then it it doesn't match. Would we find Julie Doe's, you know, second cousin, and then we can start filling in the family tree, you know? And then once you have that, you start getting closer and closer and closer. Um, but it's expensive. There's laws in place, and you have situations where people don't want to claim the relative. They don't want to know about it. You know, there's cases where we thought people were missing. They really weren't. They ran away. But the parents just once they realized they were gay, they just took them off the missing persons list and let everybody think they because they would rather them be missing than gay. Like, But fortunately for Miss Salazar, that does not seem to be the case. So she had a, a all accounts, a good life and it was cut short. And we don't really know why, you know, if if this was somebody she had a friendship and a consensual sexual relationship with you know, was an argument gone wrong? You know, we don't have any toxicology reports, so we don't know, you know, was there substance abuse? Again, I'm not saying that she used or misused any substances, but, you know, you just don't, you don't know. I mean, lots of times we find out people have passed and then we find out they were, you know, under the influence of something that went wrong. Not that they were abusing it. It was just, you know, it's kind of like somebody gets drunk and passes out in a bathtub. They didn't mean to. They weren't necessarily misusing it. They just weren't thinking and made a bad decision so we we just don't know and of course um in this case luckily the case is solved but i wanted to talk about it because i think it also it's important to put out there that even if it's cold there's still hope 
and there's always hope as long as somebody's looking as long as somebody's somebody's around that knows something there's still hope to figure it out so in this case thanks to the orange county cold case homicide task force carla salazar's murder um mystery of 25 years was finally uh able to have an arrest made um, due to those forensic evidence that was collected and luckily for her family and her friends um they know who the killer was we might, again, not know the motives behind it, so they'll have to live with that situation. But at least there is some closure to her death of being able to finally sol- solve the crime of, of who did it. As always, you can find out more about Carla Lee Salazar on our website, thecomacast.com. Again, we have lots of other previous podcasts and great articles talking about different cold cases we even uh recently talked about eileen wernos and that was a great interesting um, conversation so you can go back if you haven't and check out some of those previous podcasts we'd love to hear what you think so always interact with us on uh twitter on facebook you can find us on those accounts at the coma cast so plenty of ways to get with us and interact with us and I guess we'll just leave it at that. Um, this cold case right. was solved. So that's. Yeah. Thanks everybody for listening and for always joining us here at the Comcast. See you next time.